Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now, for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast of films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, it's a bit of a special episode, a little bit different from what we normally do, because we're reviewing a film that only came out last year. Um, So, you know, normally we go a little bit further back, but we're reviewing it because, one, it's a pretty special film, and two, it's also to mark the 101st anniversary of the end of the First World War. The film we are watching is Peter Jackson's documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. And joining me, as always, we have someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, which is amazing considering it's a Peter Jackson film, is Dr. Sarah Curtis! Yeah! I know I'm very terrified that I have not seen this film. I'm not sure how I missed it. Mm. Well, in fairness, it only came out last year, so it's still quite new. And in fairness, when it did come out, I was in the middle of thesis breakdowns. Yes, you're in the middle of becoming the doctor that you are today. That's true. So what what do you know about uh, They Shall Not Grow Old? I know that they took um, footage from, you know, the time. So, you know, it's actual real footage of stuff that happened. uh, And they've converted it from black and white into color. And they've done a bit of color grading on it and to sort of really put it together. That's the gist that I'm getting anyway. Yep, that's pretty much the gist. (laughs) Um, The the special thing about this film is that, yes, uh, Peter Jackson, uh, along with lots of other very clever filmmaking people, um, took this, this existing footage, which is now 100 plus years old, and using some special whiz-bang uh, computer chicanery, they have turned it into footage which looks more like it was shot by contemporary cameras. Um, and having seen it previously, um, I, I'm, I'm going to say that it works pretty well, but we'll have to let you see it and let you decide. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it because it's a Peter Jackson sort of thing where mm. each film he does, they try to do something a little bit special. So mm. I'm looking forward to this time. All right. Well, joining us as our guest who has seen the film, it's soon to be Dr. Ellen Sears. <laughs> Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm well. And uh, how excited are you that this is Team Pilot? Team Pilot! I am very excited because how many episodes was it since we last did one together? Was it 90? More than 90, yeah. More than 90 episodes, Sarah, since all three of us. You can blame me. I'm sorry. It's my fault. It's probably a combination of yours and my faults and probably also Stephen's, let's be real, because he's the one who schedules people. So there is that. Uh, I mean, I've been here every episode. I'm just going to say. Well, you know. We need to do better. But I feel like we've been on with other people in the interim. True. I have other friends. There is that. Uh, Ellen. Yes. You have seen They Shall Not Grow Old. I have seen the film. I saw it with you. Yes, we saw it at... Um, Luna. At Luna of, uh, last Fremantle, year. In Fremantle, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and normally I ask in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way what he tells about the film, <laughs> but it's a documentary about the First World War. Well, so it started in 1914. Yeah. And- <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> oh my God! I suppose it's more a case of... Um, what what can Sarah and other people who've not seen this film expect from this particular documentary? A lot of really amazing footage and the way that they've put it together is something that I really enjoyed watching it. The other thing that we haven't mentioned is that they actually used 
um, the voices of real soldiers to do the audio. Am I going to cry? Probably. Stephen and I were quite upset when we saw this at the cinemas. We went out for lunch afterwards and we were both pretty bummed. Because I tend to, anything that I know, you know, is real, real. that tends yeah. to really hit me. And I went to the the Te Papa exhibit that they had in Wellington mm. about the First World War that Wedding yeah. Workshop did. And, like, you had to queue for hours to get in. Yeah. And I was a mess when I came out of there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a chance it might have that effect. Probably, yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> I think part of it's an amazing documentary, though it is an amazing so documentary, good. and I think that's why. Well, that is why we chose to do it because it it is a pretty remarkable bit of filmmaking, mm. um, and I, I suppose it's more going to be a case of how the um, the updated visuals, the fact that it's yeah. real but at the same time has been sort of the fact put into a twenty first century prism. I think yeah. is is. It's gonna. That's gonna change how it affects the, each person. The fact, the fact that it's colorized. It's the same thing when you're looking at colorized photographs from, you know, a hundred plus years ago, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, these were real people. Mm. I think there's that level of distance when you've got a black and white photograph because you're like, oh, this is like a completely different world. But to put them into color and then to put voices to it, it's like, oh wow, like g- goosebumps. Like these, these were real people, and this is real footage of this like incredible conflict that was horrific. But yeah, mm. it's my favorite history thing. One of my favorite history things. That's Wait. disturbing. No, no. But like, when, like learning about it when I was at school. The First World War. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the lead up to it as well, because I was really interested in the Russian Revolution, which was also kind of in the lead up to World War One. Mm. So this is kind of a favorite history subject for me as well. I just think it's a really interesting time period. The war itself was obviously horrific. Um, and obviously, I've got a, a, a personal connection. I got to meet one of the last World War One vets in Australia mm. when I was fourteen, and I got to interview him. So mm. that was amazing. Mm. Yeah. See, I like my distancing to be a lot more distant. Yeah. <laughs> my, I was a history buff, <laughs> but uh, whenever it was, you know, anything contemporary, last couple of hundred years, I was like, um, I'll learn about it, but I'd rather not. Yeah. Well, shall we watch it and find out what it does to us? It's gonna be fun. Let's see if they grow old. Um, well, spoiler, alert. <laughs> spoiler alert most of them didn't for those of you listening at home pop in your dvds and prepare to have oh what a lovely war as we watch they shall not grow old as long as we're not watching oh what lovely war because that film was horrific okay but the actual stage show is very good <laughs> the stage show was amazing but the, the, the film version is not good Welcome back, everybody. We've just finished watching They Shall Not Grow Old, and I'm joined once again by soon-to-be Dr. Ellen Sears. Hello. And actual Dr. Sarah Curtis. Damn straight. So, Sarah, that was your first time watching They Shall Not Grow Old. Yes, it was. What are your thoughts? Well, I've had quite a few thoughts watching it, and one of the main things that's really sort of come up for me is this semester at university, I'm teaching a unit that is uh, called Ideas and Identity, and we have the last section is on violence. Mm. So I've actually spent the last month talking about war, conflict, propaganda, and the horrific things people can do to each other. Mm. Uh, So I suppose that's been like the theme of the last month for me. Mm. Uh, So watching this, I guess, is very timely. Um, So, you know, excuse me if I go into teaching rants Mm -hmm. um, on occasion. (laughs) That's okay. 
Um, yeah, so basically, you know, my initial thoughts, um, with, within the first two minutes uh, when they had sort of the introductory, you know, voiceovers talking through what was going through everyone's heads when the war started, I thought this is probably the most confronting part of the film. And I think by the end of the film, I still believe that. Mm. Um, where you have, you know, these soldiers who live through it talking about how excited they were, mm. how wonderful it is that they're all going off to war. And of course, we're looking at this from, you know, you know hindsight. We've got this perspective mm. of, you know, it's not the only one. There was another world war after that. So it's not the war to end all wars as it was supposed to be. Mm. And also, you know, we have this perspective of war being so horrific and not anything to be excited about because mm. it's now within our own um, living rooms. You know, we have televisions where war is on the TV all the time. So we can see, you know, the horrors that we can put each other through. Um, you know, from the comfort of your own living room as happened from Vietnam onwards. Mm. So the fact that they're sitting there going, yeah, war, it's the best, can't wait to go. Whenever that happens, like in movies, I find that horrific. But then hearing people who are actually there saying that, I think mm. is even worse. Yeah. Knowing what's to come, knowing what footage you're about to see. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I find that incredibly confronting. I think one of the interesting things to build upon that as well is not only do we have the hindsight of, of watching it and knowing that the First World War was, was such a, a devastating event, but these are people that survived it. And yeah. when they're speaking about it, they're talking mm. about it with that hindsight. Mm. And you can hear it. And, you know, some of them are saying, oh, yeah, no, we were very excited. And some of them are going, yeah, we were excited. And that was obviously because we didn't know. Mm. Yeah. And you're right, that's extremely confronting. Mm. And I, I think confronting is a very good word for this film. I would definitely agree with that. And I think the interesting thing, because looking at the, obviously the voiceovers from this are all from real oral histories from real World War I veterans. And I'd be very interested to know, um, I think the audio quality on some of them is quite poor, which kind of begs the question of how old are these recordings and when were they actually made? Because a lot of these guys were very young. So I'm kind of thinking you know, when was this actually recorded and how much time had they had to kind of reflect on their part in the war and all of that? Because I, I mean, think it's a big mm, mix. A lot of the voices were quite older male voices. Yeah, you yeah, could, yeah. You could sort of tell these were people that had lived a fair time, mm. so... Um, I think I think the audio quality on them as well, they've obviously cleaned some of the audio up on them, but yeah, well, some uh, of them are quite obviously not good quality. No, a lot of the documentation of those veterans from the first world war in terms of audio interviews or video yeah. interviews started around the 1970s in the yeah. uk um 60s 70s and a lot of these would have been from the 70s to the 80s because mm. by the time you get to they the 1980s all get started dying. yeah well yeah. yeah you get then that's what almost well 60 plus years after the war so yeah. they'd all be old old men if yeah. they'd lived that long so yeah, yeah the I, I i think that first-hand account it's it's interesting how that was utilised within the film. I think one of the main things, I suppose, um, as a, as a first-time viewer, Sarah, is what, what are your thoughts on how Peter Jackson and the production team chose to present this, this tale of um, the First World War? I thought it was uh, fascinating the way they did it because obviously whenever you're editing something like this together, there is a bias. Oh, yeah. Um, so obviously they were trying to present a story of the war 
what everyone was going through, what everyone was thinking at the beginning, throughout, how things changed and then, you know, how they felt at the end. And, you know, it was incredibly important to utilize those oral histories rather Mm. than fictionalize it and just take, just make up a story about it, you know, taking the stories of the people who lived it is Mm. incredibly important from a research perspective um, and from a historical perspective. But of course they had to sift through a lot, what was there, Mm. um, what worked and sort of create, craft a narrative, a patchwork narrative almost with those accounts. I think they did a pretty good job of kind of getting stuff from both sides because obviously at the beginning there were a lot of people going, we were so excited to go um, and all that kind of thing. But then as you sort of go on, you get, a bigger balance and obviously when you get right towards the end when they're all talking about how they were feeling at the end um it is leaning a little bit more towards it was a pretty horrible time there was some good stuff but like predominantly it was not nice Mm. i think it's interesting as well when you look at the perspective of veterans from different conflicts specifically between the first and the second world war in the second world war there was now that knowledge that the previous mm. war had been so bad mm. that a lot of the, uh, I suppose, the way people prepared mentally for yeah. the war, knowingly or not, yeah. was definitely different. I, I felt there was a real uniformity, and I found this with a lot of experience in terms of First World War accounts and things like that, mm. is there was almost this homogenized viewpoint of, oh, war's brilliant, you know, particularly from the British perspective, which mm. um, this film is entirely taken from the british perspective and that was a creative choice um by peter jackson Mm. um simply because he wanted to showcase there was so much that he could have done he wanted to Mm. showcase it from one particular perspective and And you have to otherwise too big yeah it's huge because there was discussions about including stuff because there's obviously lots of footage from the french and from the germans but it would have turned it Mm. into a much bigger project than he felt would have been um, acceptable so I, he went I, I think that focus is important and I think it's mm. it's a good picture of yeah that particular perspective and I think also because of what they're telling it's not as though you know they're they're showcasing it as like oh well the British ones so they're the story worth telling I mm. think it's really interesting how they start off with that nationalistic perspective yes. which would have been present for any of the countries that have gone to had this been yes. a French documentary it would have been all the French survivors mm. talking about um you know the the way propaganda led them in in and their decisions i thought it was really interesting that all of that nationalism was stripped away almost as soon as they joined the army mm-hmm. um, and the only time it really came back up again was in the section where they're dealing with the germans at the end the prisoners of war yeah but their nationalism is kind of more oh they come from a different culture but we're all kind of the same i thought that was a really um uh, well good choice and effective choice because ultimately that national identity, I think, was so unimportant by the end of the conflict to oh, those yeah. that had survived it. Yeah. Mm, especially when so much of the propaganda is, let's go out and kill these people. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's so much us versus them. It's so to have that realisation that, no, we're all human mm. uh, is a really good framing point. Mm. Um, so the big, I suppose, selling point of this film is the, the use of technology to yeah. take the footage from the First World War and get it to a standard that is more equivalent to what we're used to in the early 21st century. How was that watching it for the first time? Uh, it was really interesting because, of course, you know, it starts out with black and white and it sort of frames it as ye olde times, mm-hmm. um, as you'd expect in, to see in, it. Zooms in, yeah. And um, you know, then the transition was very smooth mm. um, into that. 
And it was interesting seeing the color, especially the greenery. Yeah. Because of course you see all these images of the trenches and of the destruction mm. um, of no man's land. And it's all, you know, burnt out holes and the husks of trees that used to be a beautiful forest. Mm. And then to see, you know, these explosions on a green field and go, well, you know. And the blue sky and mm. the beautiful sunsets mm. and things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there is an interesting... I, I think partly because of the art that mm. it was produced, particularly post the war. Mm. I mean, there, there are sections like in the, the real nitty-gritty of No Man's Land where the there is there is no green. It is just trees, yeah. tree stumps and, and desolation. But the majority of the experience, at least showcased in this film, wasn't that. There was a mm. lot of greenery for them. But I think it's really interesting that that's one of the things that this film can show is mm. that the war wasn't all essentially just fought in Mordor. You know, that, that kind yeah. of look. Yeah. But, and and how... Um, Do you know what it reminds me of? Yeah. That shift from the black and white? Because obviously it starts off and it's framed in the little um, sort of... Oh, the square framing. Yeah, the, and then that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, the four by that. three out to the 16 I, by I, nine. I... I, I the, the the thing that it reminds me of is that moment in The Wizard of Oz where you go from the sepia and she opens the door and she goes out into the land of Oz and it's mm. Technicolor. That's what it reminds me of in a horrifying way. But it's that same sort of thing because it's that like punch to the back of the retina is like and color. And it's like, wow. Mm. And it just brings the whole thing to horrible, horrible life. Um, well, I, I mean, I that, think that's, that's what it reminds me of. It's that yeah. same sort of thing, but just like the complete opposite emotion behind it that choice then to have all of the pre-war or like preparation for yeah war, in, black training and white. in black and white and yeah. then only having the front in color and then the same at the end they go back to black and white again yeah um do, do you think that was a good choice i i thought it was i thought mm. it was i th- yeah i think because the whole point was to really focus on the front and mm. the footage at the front and obviously as well if they'd gone through and actually done the colorizing process to the whole thing it would have taken 10 times as long because mm. a lot of the footage at the beginning and at the end was just as it was um without adding all the extra frames in as well because that was the other thing i'm not sure when you're going to talk well, about, we can the, talk the about it now so it wasn't yeah. just colorizing it so obviously no. they went through and made it all so that it matched the colors of um the actual environment but there was a computer program that they used that filled in the missing frames. Because, mm-hmm. of course, uh, the way we do things these days is it's between 25 and 60 frames per second, depending on the camera that you're using. Um, but for those old cameras, it was anywhere between 10, 12 was the standard. Yeah, 12. Um, yeah. But anywhere between 10 and 14, depending on the make of camera. Which meant that then when you were watching it, it looked like they were kind of sped up. Yeah. But this then slowed it down to a normal pace. So the way that it worked was the there were like... 12 frames and they needed it to be 24 so every second frame was then generated by a computer working out what the midpoint between frame one and frame three was to create frame two mm. in your 24 frames per second and i and then colorize it and then oh colorized it and it was it was great in, in terms of like just as purely as a filmic technique mm. watching it in the cinema for the first time i was like wow we like it was yeah it looks good mm. did, uh, how did you feel watching it obviously in a more uh, suburban television environment <laughs> i mean like obviously you could see moments where it didn't quite work yeah but mm. that was also felt like it was part of the experience as well mm. because obviously we're all very familiar with the uh the 12 frames um and how that looks and how mm. it feels you know, otherworldly. Hmm. Um, so still having that feeling of something jarring a little bit felt like it worked within the framing of the text itself, hmm. where, you know, this is still 
otherworldly. It's still like the inter- the war is in color and everything else is in black and white. Mm. The war is moving at a different speed and everything else is you know a lot faster. Yeah. So I think that helped to really frame it as this is other, this is different, mm. even mm. though it's closer to what we're more familiar with. It's yeah. still different enough to be other. And I, th- I personally think that, yeah, the decision to have it just the, the action on the front be color, mm. I think is a really good creative choice. Mm. Just in terms of for building that narrative and as you say, um, showcasing. I think it, what it does is it really makes the most of the impact of what this updated footage can mm. have by having it appear almost a third of the way through the film. Yeah. And I, having I it just be in that area. When we watched it in the cinemas, I, I thought, because I, I thought the whole thing was going to be colourised and with all mm. the bits and pieces. And then I was sort of sitting there going like, wow, this is a long time and we haven't gone to colour yet. And then when it hit, I went, ah, gotcha. And I felt that again, watching it again today, mm. I was like, this is a long time mm. before you actually get to the front and get to the colourisation. But when you do, the impact is like, um, so I, I just sort of took general notes of things because th- there isn't a plot as such in this. You know, it's a documentary. <laughs> but e- even documentaries do usually have some form of narrative. And the yes. narrative of this was the British frontline soldiers' experience mm. of joining the army, going to the front lines in France, returning, um, and that whole experience. And I, I suppose as a as a historical document i suppose um i suppose the question becomes from particularly from your research background sarah um i suppose as an educational tool or as as something that documents an experience do you think that it's effective in that absolutely i mean you know i have had a a long interest in history nearly became a history major Mm. didn't quite get there in the end (laughs) uh there were too many other things to do (laughs) um but you know i've spent a lot of time especially when i travel alone i spend a lot of time in museums Mm. um and in the uk particularly they have a lot of war museums and war memorials yeah and, you know, in every town they have the memorial of, mm. you know, here's the list of the dead from World War One. here's the list of the dead from World War Two. Mm. So, you know, it's very much memorialized within their culture mm. um, that this is something that everyone pays their respects to. So, you know, from the perspective of someone like me who, you know, doesn't like war and doesn't mm. like the culture around war and violence mm. to go in and see it in a museum. I am still separate. It is still, there's still that glass case yeah. between yeah. you. And if you want to move on and not see something, you can. And that's something I often do. I'll go into certain rooms and go, cool. I like the swords and I like the interest in um, the way things developed. And oh, looks like there's a lot of horrific gore in there. I'm mm. just going to skip that room mm. because mm. I can. Obviously in a film, you can't skip it. No. I mean, you could press fast forward if you really wanted to, but you know, I'm watching it with other people. If you're in the cinema, you can't press fast forward. You're forced mm. to sit there and watch that and listen to those perspectives. And I think, again, that's where the oral history gets very important because mm. reading something on a plaque, my eyes are really shit. So <laughs> I will be in a museum. I'll read the first line and my eyes will start hurting. I'll go, cool. Let's just assume that whatever they're telling me is war is bad. Yeah. Let's move on. I think it's interesting a few points in there first of all the um the war memorials in british towns and things like that um as you might be able to tell i'm from england uh, with this this voice of mine um and it was something that actually struck me recently traveling through 
um, the southwest here in Australia, mm. going to a lot of country towns yeah. where their war memorials are very prominent. Now, that could just be because these are very small locations. There are war memorials around the you know older suburbs of Perth. There's one which is, um, I always find really interesting, which is uh, almost there's like a major road that runs right next to it. Um, oh, yes, I know the one. Yeah, just near um, Albany Highway. Yes, I yeah. know the one. Yes. So it previously must have been like as part of a park or the major road wasn't major at one point, but now it kind of just sits there as this like monument next to essentially a motorway mm. almost. Um, but where, whereas obviously in these older country towns, which are much smaller, it's very prominent. It it's reminded me. very centred, yeah. And it reminded me of growing up in, I grew up in a lot of villages in the UK and even in the Isle of Man. Um, and there are, the war memorials are mm. central. So um, mm. in, in Chinley, there's the, we, we saw it when we were there last year, Ellen. Yes. There's the plaque which just lists all the people that were from Chinley who died in the First World War and then a couple that died in the Second as well were added on to it. And growing up in the UK, I was born in 1989, so growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, the veneration of particularly the Second World War um, was very pronounced. Obviously, yeah. um, Remembrance Day, I think, is a much bigger deal in the UK than it is here in Australia. And, yeah. it's, well, Austra- and, that's, and that's saying something well, because... Well, well, Australia does have Anzac Day, though. Yeah, I mean, that's I, a good point. I think all of, all of sort of Australia's kind of focus and New Zealand's focus is on mm. is on Anzac Day at a different mm. time of the year. Remembrance Day is still a big deal. Yeah. But I feel as though the, the emotional, uh, cultural connection to military service comes out on Anzac Day. I'd agree. In the UK, it's Remembrance Day. Mm. um, And it's a big, big deal. You know, everyone will wear the poppies. It's it's a big deal if you don't wear the poppy. Um, There's a a, a lot of... To the point where in Premier League football, when it's the weekend that's closest to the Remembrance Day service, all the football shirts will have, you know, like a poppy incorporated into the shirt as a mark of respect. Um, there are certain uh, people who've taken a political stance because of their background, usually because they're from Ireland, um, who who say, <laughs> I am not wearing a poppy on my shirt. And they get incredible amounts of vitriol, same time every year, simply yeah. because they've said, I don't want to partake in this memorial of, or, of, of, of war and particularly the First World War. Yeah. Um, and you know it resonates like mm. and i think it's interesting there is that balance between from my experience was that it was mostly or majoritively it was a respect for what had happened before there is certainly that um that that element of it which is like oh yeah war is great and that was when this country the used glorifi- to be good yeah and, the, all, all glo- the glorification yeah. of war yeah and yeah. i i do feel as though it's very easy to hijack that for it. But from my experience, I feel as though what mm. I was brought up and taught in the schooling system is closer to the message that Peter Jackson was trying to communicate in this film than the sort of war's great. Jingoistic, array. nationalistic kind of. Yeah. See, I've got another perspective. Yeah. Um, see, again, growing up in Australia, we've always had uh, Anzac Day and something yeah. that we've, you know, partaking in and that's something I've that's never sat comfortably with me Mm. and it took me a while to figure out what it was that um offended me so much uh it's because of the way we treat our veterans Mm. and in Australia in America and in plenty of other countries and as is seen in this film right at the end Mm. is that we have all these days to remember them and sometimes they do get hijacked to be like yeah war fantastic which is obviously not you know the case Mm. um but I think, you know, we should practice what we preach. 
if you're going to honor mm. the service of these people you need to look after them when they come home. Yes. You need to, um, you know, give them medical aid, mental health aid. You need to give them the ability to come back to a job. You know, you can't just abandon them. Many of them become homeless. Yeah. The, um, the biggest population, I think, or like is is of homeless people is of homeless people in the mm. USA yeah. and certainly in other countries is veterans, um, mm. particularly uh, in the last 10, 15 years in in the USA. Um, oh yeah. The, I think it was uh, female veterans mm. were like one of the largest. Uh, segments of, mm. of the homeless population and you're right I, I think it's having the day is all well and good but you know we, we, we all know people who have served in the armed forces whether it was you know they served for a couple of years or they were there mm. for like 20 years and actually fought in conflicts mm. there's a generation who are starting to die out who were the Vietnam veterans yeah um, I mean I've got again so many family connections to mm. war uh, my brother uh, is um, in the army uh, my dad was SAS. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very lucky that he didn't get called to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, my potential grandfather. Um, <laughs> family well, trees are fun. Yeah, family trees are fun. Sarah's family tree is fun. It's great. Um, <laughs> but the one who may or may not be um, was a World War II vet um, mm -hmm. who lost both his legs. Um, you know, so going back further and further, you know, pretty much all of us have got family members and yeah. have been affected oh, sure. in some yeah. way. My, yeah. my, my dad's a army veteran his mm. dad served in the army in the would have been late 50s early mm. 60s that you know that kind of thing um it, it, it's my dad thing. missed out on vietnam just because of when his birthday was mm. like he barely missed out but a yeah. lot of his mates had to go but to I, vietnam. I i think it's um yeah i think it's 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 interesting i suppose how we discuss war and yeah. i think that focusing on particular conflicts like this is a really interesting way of doing it because particularly from the start of the 20th century onwards, no war is really the same no. because of the advancements in, in technology. technology. You could conceivably put um, Alexander the Great up against Napoleon with the exact same forces they had, despite mm. the fact that Napoleon had muskets and cannons, mm. and it would still conceivably be a close fight. Uh, you couldn't put Alexander the Great up against Stalin because of just the huge, or even Napoleon against Stalin, isn't just because there of the a, huge. Is, isn't there a, a, a game or like a like a simulator where you can actually do that? There yeah, are. Yeah, there's many. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's one yeah. in particular that I read about a while ago, and mm. it's just come back to me where you can essentially be like, all right, let's get a bunch of chariots from ancient Egypt and like pit that up against some like a bunch of World War II soldiers go. Yeah. I mean, any of the strategic um, battle games that oh, you yeah. play. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But I, I think it is interesting that if we're looking at 20th century and now 21st century conflict, Mm. that i think you need to discuss them by conflict as opposed to war as a general topic yeah they're very different even just looking at world war one versus world war two mm. the, the 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 shift in technology between those two wars insane the shift in technology just from the beginning of world war one yeah. to the big to the, to the end well when the tanks Massive. turn up in this yeah. film the tanks are the bit of the film that i always think look unreal otherworldly they're, yeah. the, they're the thing that most makes me go wow that's it looks like something out of a sci-fi novel like, yeah like something out of it's, dune or star wars or... it's so bizarre like just seeing them rolling around and you've still got horses knocking around in the background yeah and, and little steam engine trains and yeah the technology oh and, and swords and swords and like muskets and stuff yeah yeah Man. um a couple of the other bits i just wanted to touch on so there were lots of horrible things uh, oh, in, yeah. in the trenches. Um, oh, yeah. I thought it was really interesting, though, that the way that Jackson chose to depict um, this film was that I don't think we ever saw anybody 
die on camera in terms of mm. footage. We saw plenty of dead people and horses and all sorts, but that was usually still imagery. It was I, usually think, I, think, I think the closest you might get was when there's that line of horses heading off into the horizon away from the camera and there's the shell yeah. explosion and you see the horses then have gone down mm. and it looks like at least one of the horses is dead yeah. and possibly the riders as well. You can't see. It's very far away. Yeah, but it's not up close. Yeah, and I thought that was, again, if you're going to subject people to... Gore the, and the horrors, the of horror, gore. and the yeah. Because th- this film doesn't draw back. Like you see people who've got like the you know their heads blown open by yeah. being shot and things like that, but you don't see it happen. No. Yeah, and I think there's a line that's being drawn there, um, which again is one of the very strong messages of this documentary is all about dehumanization, hmm. and that's what happened from World War One onwards yeah. is that you lost that human element you have millions of people being slaughtered and you can't see who you're killing and you can't see who's just shot your best mate hmm. um and it really takes away that human element which is why having those oral histories yeah. overlaying it to bring back that humanity was so important hmm. because you know these days someone can press a button somewhere and we're all dead hmm. how is that war how is that hmm. honourable? Yeah. How is that do anything to help anyone? Well, I yeah. mean, the argument is that war is not honourable. Yes. <laughs> that's beside the point. <laughs> well, well, I think that's also interesting. And again, it's something we discussed with the viewpoints at the start of the film, is yeah. that this war, more than I think any other war, changed the identity of how societies and individuals how, view How conflict. the world works. Yeah. yeah. Because prior to that, obviously, particularly from a British perspective, it was fight for the empire, shoot some people that don't have guns you know that was essentially what it came down to and Mm. it was you know war was like a jolly daring sharp like adventure yeah um and then you have this war where you think it's going to be that and it very quickly is not that's exactly what peter said when i interviewed him he was Mm. um, when i was 14 i was actually doing oral history at school um i was in year nine and my mum was working in veterans affairs for a in-home nursing thing and Mm. so for this um we had a um what's it called an assignment where we had to take primary secondary sources and then pretend to interview a world war one veteran i said well i've actually got access to one can i go and do that my teacher went yes and so my friend and i and looking back at it i really wish there's there's so many questions i would ask now Mm. that i didn't ask then because i was a 14 year old i had no idea Mm. but what what peter said was there's no honour in it and the only good thing about it was that you were there with your mates. Mm. It was just fight, 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 kill, kill, kill and we were there for a job. And that's, that's pretty full-on stuff mm. for like a 14-year-old. We were just like, wow. Well, yeah, exactly. And um, I, I think it's interesting that that viewpoint is very much shown in this film, particularly that, yeah. that comradeship yeah. between, you know, the voices that we're hearing almost certainly aren't the faces that we're seeing. Mm. Um, but that general sense of togetherness and comradeship mm. um i think is is um it's, it's interesting how that was utilized and i think one of the other things that i did want to touch on with you sarah is um how much this conflict even away from the film had an impact on one of your most popular texts or favorite texts the lord of the rings because in the second viewing um, knowing that this is Peter Jackson who directed the films, knowing yeah, of course that Tolkien was a World War One um, veteran, and looking at how this film was pieced together, I was I, I found th- this watching 
very influential in terms of the themes of that text, both in terms of book and film. Mm. And, you know, yeah, yeah, there's some parallels to be drawn there, of course. Um, and, you know, earlier this year, the film Tolkien was released, which was his early years, including the First World War. And some of the images are exactly the same. Mm. Mm. Like there was one point um, this afternoon as we were watching where there was a crater filled with water mm. and you couldn't quite tell if it was mud or bodies. Mm. Yeah. And there is a shot identical to it in the film Tolkien mm. where he's basically lying in a crater, half drowning in water, lying on the dead bodies of the soldiers who were there. Mm. Um, and I think it's filled with blood as well, which is horrific. Uh, there's a really great book by John Garth uh, called Tolkien and the Great War. Um, which basically looks at the parallels between what happened, um, the letters that he was writing at the time. Mm. You know, he was incredibly lucky mm. that he got trench fever and had to be shipped out very quickly because he was at the Somme. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's pretty much a one-way ticket to death. Mm. Yeah. Um, and he was, um, he went in rather late-ish because he was at Oxford and he wanted to finish his studies. And then as soon as he graduated, he signed up. Mm. Uh, and yeah, you can see he always said that he hated allegory. In fact, if you read the introduction to The Lord of the Rings, um, you know, he says, you know, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifest manifestations. Mm. Who quoting? Um, <laughs> <laughs> can, you can you tell she's an academic? Um, and basically, <laughs> but what he does say is, you know, he prefers history real or feigned, but that doesn't mean that you can't draw parallels mm. yeah. because. The Lord of the Rings is not an allegory. It's not, mm. hey, you know, if we're at Mordor, we're at, you know, the Somme. Mm. If we're um, in Rivendell, we're over here. There's no exact one-to-one -one parallel, mm. but there are themes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, there is that mateship that comes through. Mm. Um, there's, you know, the reliance that you had um, as an officer on um, the men around you. Mm. Um, so you've got the Frodo and Sam relationship there. You know, there's images. The most stark image um, from The Lord of the Rings is probably the Dead Marshes. Mm. Yeah. Where, you know, yeah. you have the bodies. Oh, I just went all over chills. Yeah. yeah. Mm. The bodies, uh, like bog bodies, basically, mm. just hovering just underneath the water where you can almost touch them, but not quite. And, you know, the gas is sending up flames. Mm. And so you can really feel that you're almost there in mm. the trenches where, you know, you're having to wade through the thick mud and you're stumbling over bodies. And mm. if you fall under there, you will probably die. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are some horrific images that definitely shaped what became, mm. you know, one of the greatest books of the century. I think the other thing I want to touch on is the influence that that had on Jackson as well. Mm. Um, oh, you can tell it's a Peter Jackson thing because there's a mm. lot of explosions in this. And I'm like, bless you, Peter. We know mm. you love your big booms, don't you? Yeah. But I, I'm wondering if, because Peter Jackson um, famously has a fascination with the First World War. Yes. I mean, with history in general, but specifically the First World War. And yes. obviously the film is dedicated to his, his uh, grandfather who mm. served in the British Army between 1910 and 1919. It's also dedicated to two other soldiers um, who are familial relations who died during that war. Mm. And it, it, it's very clear that that is present. I, I suppose it's more a case of how much Jackson's own interactions with the First World War influenced his filmmaking of The Lord of the Rings. Mm. 
I mean, his style is very interesting because he came from those really gory yeah. um, slasher films. Mm. Um, mm. But he was always dedicated to the look, to the image and to making everything the best it could possibly be, mm. um, even when you don't see it. And I think that definitely comes across in the style in this film with the colorization and the way he played with the frame rate. Of course, he played with the frame rate in The Hobbit, mm. which you know didn't go down particularly well. But I think if he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have been able to do this. Yeah. yeah. So you can see the way he's shaping his craft mm. over the years mm. and how that dedication comes across to all the teams he works with, whether mm. it's digitally or physical props in films like Lord of the Rings, where, you know, there's carpenters who are, you know, putting a little thing um, on a chair or something that you're never going to see. Um, but, you know, they'll, but they'll, they'll know that it's there. They'll know it's there. They'll know that it's there. <laughs> and, you know, that I think, again, that relationship with war and that fascination. He grew up, um, you know, shooting little films um, with models of, I think it was World War II bombers. Mm. Yeah. Um, so he would make models of um, these planes. And he used to do all the practical explosions as yeah. well. A lot of his early stuff, I've seen some mm. of the footage and it's like, wow, holy And holy so man. the way that he trained himself in film using war footage and, you know, cutting war footage together and creating his own replicas uh, definitely influenced him in Lord of the Rings, which again influenced his later work, which moved into this. So it's a nice little cycle there. Mm. Mm. Um, just before we get on to uh, some of the trivia around the film itself, um, Alan, you and I saw this in the cinema. Yeah. And I have one word. Well, technically, well, it's one word or two words. Landmines. Yes. They're the most terrifying thing in the yes, world. Yes, oh my God, they're like, huge. I think the, the thing this film really did more than anything is when they have that section detailing... This is what a general shell looked like. This is what that kind of shotgun shell where it explodes in the air and rains shrapnel down and looks like. And then rain shrapnel down, yeah. And then the landmine. Just, yeah. It, it's one of those things where I, I, I've i never seen a landmine go off. I've well, been very fortunate in yes. that sense. Yes. Um, and you, you know, you hear about them and you see them in, you know, lots of other media, you know, usually fictional depict, you know, depicting um, mm. things. But my main experience with landmine is the, is the joke from Blackadder Goes Forth, um, which is set in World <laughs> War One, where they're in a field and George is going, oh, this field's full of mushrooms. And it's like mushrooms. Yes. Look at the map. And Blackadder goes, no, no. Why would they detail interesting fungi? That is a field of landmines you've led us into. So... That that was kind of the experience, and then just yeah. seeing what how a, big the explosions yeah, are, just seeing the, the earth rent asunder from from beneath. Yeah, was full on, particularly in a cinema. Yeah, I was terrified. I mean, look, this whole film, watching it in the cinema, because the screen was so big, and we were reasonably close to the front mm. from memory as well. Yeah. And you know, when you have those gangrenous feet, just like boom, right there, like massive Technicolor in your face, it mm. was full on. Like we we went and saw the film, and we went out for like a late lunch afterwards, mm. and we were both just kind of like picking at our food, like it's going to be us at dinner tonight. Oh mm. man, no, but like, and and I think you were quite like if we were both affected a lot, like emotionally, because mm. it's, yeah. it's a full on film, and to see it on a big screen was like Jesus Christ, and like it's it's there's a lot of bits that are quite heart-wrenching as well and just horrific and just some horrific imagery like it, it took a bit to kind of shake it off i think mm. it was kind of better seeing it this time on a smaller screen number one mm. um but also having seen it yeah. already i was like oh yes i remember this i remember the you know horse with half its face blown off with flies on it and mm. all that lovely 
imagery, but yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I, I think I think the fact that they actually go through and they look at the different explosions is one of them is is a point of interest for me because yeah. obviously again I've not seen an explosion like that in real life. Yeah. yeah, but the fact that they actually show so here's the one that go, and and you get a lot of examples of it. Like there's yeah. a lot of ex- examples of explosions yeah. in this. And I think that's a lot of them that this film does really well as well as really showcasing you know all the stuff in the trench and it's like this is how we ate in the trench. It was bad. This is how we. Went to the toilet in the trench. And it uh, was bad. It was bad, yeah. <laughs> this is how we slept. Stood up. It wasn't great. You know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Oh, can and we make a fire? Fun. We might get shot in the head if we do. Uh, and you this know. guy stood up like a half an inch too much. And it was like, oh, sniper, you're gone. Yeah. Oh, sniper, you're gone. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really... Um, just the whole depiction of it, I thought, was, was so well constructed. Mm. And they've got little tiny moments of levity, like you know the story about how they had all the guys sitting on the post, the poop hole, having yeah, on, yeah. On, on the on the on the poop hole, and then the poop hole snapped, and they all just fell straight into this trench, just full of like it's disgusting. You're like, oh, that's a bit shit. That's disgusting. Mm. Oh my god! Like, but like, can you imagine? Just oh god, and the stink. It must have just been those poor guys. Mm. I mean, those poor guys in general. But, but yeah. oh man! But also, it's a little bit funny. Yeah. See, when you brought up. <laughs> Landmines, all I could think of to bring it back to Lord of the Rings, <laughs> um, and I think Ellen knows where I'm going with this, is in the in the behind the scenes. Oh, the Pelennor? Uh, yeah. Uh, not pe- it wasn't not Pelennor. Pelennor. It was um, um, in front of the Black Gate. So where they filmed for the, um, the Black Gate um, was in a live munitions range. Um, and they'd done a lot of testing um, with the army, the New mm. Zealand army. So they had to get some army guys out to say, okay, you can walk here, but not over there. Um, you know, there's still some some mines around here and they'd hold things up and go, this is a bomb, this is a rock. Yeah. And you'd be like, cool, so if I go over there, I'm going to die. Mm. Excellent. So, you know, that made uh, filming that scene incredibly and then the si- And then the size doubles nearly got, like, mowed down by the other dudes because they were so tiny. Mm. War. It sucks. Yeah. Would you guys like some trivia about the film that I'd They Shall Not Grow love Old? love some trivia about the film. All right. Uh, Peter Jackson did not receive any money from making this film. He forego, uh, he forewent mm. having a fee. I remember that. Yeah, mm. which good for him. Well, this was very much a passion project for him, but I think it was also, I don't know, something about it feels right not getting yes. paid for this. I yeah. think also, and I think that was part of the point as well when he made it, because um, I follow him on Facebook, mm. and he is very political. Yeah, um, he posts a lot of um, sort of political rants, I suppose you could call them. Mm. But he also talks about all the causes that he works for, mm. yeah. and if there's anything important that's happening, especially in Wellington, mm. he's the one to stand up and say, "Okay, let's do something about this." Right. So yeah, that really good you know, guy, Peter Jackson. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the crew received over 600 hours of interviews from over 200 wow. soldiers and 100 hours approximately, of original footage. Peter Jackson spent a full year just reviewing the material. Or he claims that's how long it took to review the whole thing. I mean, well, it would have done. Man. Uh, It was a deliberate choice not to identify the soldiers or battlegrounds, as that would ground the film in too many facts and slow it down. Instead, the desire was to make this about the experience of being a soldier. Yeah, and that came across very strongly. The voices of the soldiers in the restored footage were added by professionally reading their lips and then, for the sake of accuracy, hiring voice actors from the same area of Great Britain that the soldiers had hailed from. That's great. One bit of footage that had been used often in prior documentaries of an officer reading a statement to his troops would not yield to this method, likely because of the officer's moustache. But Peter Jackson was able to find the text um, of a candidate statement in the archives and then recorded himself reading it at various speeds 
and it matched the footage. So I had wondered about that because there were moments I'm like, that's definitely the exact same word that they're saying, mm. but I know they don't have the audio from this. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, they're getting the, well, you know, like that guy walking past the camera going, "Hi, mum!" Like that. <laughs> Look, was ju- we're gonna be in the pictures. <laughs> yeah, that's all just like getting in expert lip readers, and again with the cleared up footage, you can do that. You get that detail, like yeah, like those little signs where they've renamed bits of the trenches, like Piccadilly and stuff like that. But you can see it as they're walking past them. It's spectacular it's really and the, really and fantastic. The, i think there was a danger one as well and i was like this looks like a photograph you could have taken like a week ago mm. amazing uh when peter jackson was approached to make this film he was allowed unlimited access to yeah. the iwm film archives and as the film was co-produced the bbc he was also allowed to access their film and tv library mm. he was told he could do whatever he wanted with the project just as long as it was respectful and interesting Aside from the impressive computer augmented colorization of the monochrome film, uh, one of the things he wanted to sort out was for the film to play at normal speed so the action uh, scene appeared normal and not jerky and jarring. And so that's where that computer algorithm came in. They basically went, oh yeah, we can basically get the computer to create the missing frames. And Jackson stated that um, he was so surprised with how well it did in terms of once they'd done the first bit of test footage, he was like, we can make this film and we can make it good. Hmm. Which is just and he has a good history of you know working with teams that are like okay this technology doesn't exist I guess we'll just invent it I guess we'll mm. just make it didn't he I, I feel like he did like a little bit of footage and then showed it to them they were like okay you can have whatever you want man like mm. go for it yeah go for it uh, Jackson was determined to present in the documentary only vintage film and artwork from the period and not cheat by staging reenactments. Although I'm pretty sure those lice were, were modern lice. I don't think they were. <laughs> Trench lice. Yeah. It's what, fake. Those, those lice are acting. What about those rats? Yeah, same. I, I feel like yeah. acting rats. Acting rats. Yeah. Uh, paid poorly. Aside from that, though, he did manage to achieve it. Uh, given that he was uncertain how to depict the intense hand-to-hand fighting in the trenches, of which there exists no footage, yeah. uh, Jackson fortunately had a collection of a serial magazine, The War Illustrated, with dramatic pencil sketches of combat, and they were used in the film. Those were amazing images. Mm. Amazing. Those sketches were also drawn during the war, so Jackson was pleased to maintain period authenticity. The one challenge was that the pictures were propagandist in nature, depicting the British soldiers as valorous and the mm. germans cowardly in combat at odds with what is being said in the testimonies so the drawings had to be cropped to avoid the more outlandish jingoism i did notice that because mm. again mm. having studied you know the era and being very familiar with the propaganda having just taught it um i was sort of waiting for some of the more horrific propaganda to come mm. up so i was very pleased that they cut around that i mean even though on the one hand it is something that happened, so it's important to say, yep, this happened, it existed, we can do better now. Mm-hmm. But I think not everything has to perfectly align to those sorts of um, settings either. We, you know, It's really important with any film or any story or any history that it all talks to each other. It's not in a vacuum. Mm. So the fact that they cut around it was appropriate to the message that they were trying to portray. Yeah. There are other mm. places out there that say, yep, this propaganda existed. Well, it was shit. They, they also showed the propaganda at the start of the it, film. Yeah. Mm. Like that, that big monkey um, who was Oh, like, yeah, the ape. Yeah, 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 the, big, yeah the big imperialist ape and like all the... All the Footage, yeah, the footage, the poster of like the um, guy sitting in the armchair with his kids, like, what did you do during the war, Daddy? Like, all of that was contextually appropriate because they were talking about being drawn into the war and being recruited. Mm-hmm. So I entirely agree. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, grass and dirt proved to be the most challenging items to colorize. Some <laughs> of the actual locations were identified, and Peter Jackson went there himself and shot thousands of photographs of grass and dirt to Amazing. use as reference. Amazing. Sounds just like him. You that... can just imagine being in France, walking along. Is that man over there? The laws, it is Peter Jackson. <laughs> he's he's, just there. he's, he's just taking there. pictures of the dirt. He's just taking pictures of the dirt. Amazing. And you can just picture him as well with the hair and the bare feet. Yeah. Little hobbit man doing his hobbit mm. thing. The title of this film is a slight misquotation from the poem For the Fallen yes. by Lawrence Binion, who wrote, They shall grow, not old. Peter Jackson has chosen to put the words in a more logical order in <laughs> contrast to uh, Binion's more archaic syntax. I mean, poetry, you know, it does its thing, but it's not necessarily going to work yeah. in every setting. No, there while, is that. While we're on poetry and words, uh, can we just have a quick update on the font used in oh, this yeah. film? Oh, the, yeah. The, no, the font is good. The font is good? That's that's all we need to know. I mean, know. that was the first comment you made while we were watching it was, good you, font. It does have a good... Fonts are so important. Ellen's the font master. Ellen yes. is the font master. And fonts are really important. They, they And are. I think that they had... It was nice how it was sort of distressed along the edges and in the middle. It was not. It was nice. It was a good font. That's mm. all I have to say. Okay. Master cut. <laughs> The film premiered at the 2018 London Film Festival in the presence of Prince William. Copies of the film were then sent to schools in the UK on the same day. Awesome. That's how you do it. Good. Late in production, Peter Jackson came up with the idea to end the film with Mademoiselle from Armentieres over the credits. That's the song that went for, for ages. Um, and to produce a new recording. There was not the time to fly in British actors to New Zealand, so members of the nearby British embassy with the appropriate accents were asked to come in and record the song. <laughs> Amazing. So oh, that's great. Hey, are you British? Oh, come yes, here. yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, we need you to sing an army song. Let's go, man. All right. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, the, there was quite a lot of music in this film. Mm. Um, it was very subtle. Yeah. Very nice. Well, that makes sense um, because when you think about the way we talk about these sorts of conflicts, it's often through the music. Mm. Yeah. Um, one, because of the emotionality mm. um, and two, because it's a way of connecting with what was happening then and there at the time. Because, mm. of course, um, there were many um, songs written for the army and about the army. When you think about... Um, yeah, America, Broadway, there were many shows, propaganda shows, especially oh, yeah. musicals that were written to support the troops. Mm. Um, mm. And then those songs were learnt on the front lines mm. um, and in schools. So, you know, it's really part of the, the nature of war. It comes with songs. And it's mm. that idea of, well, of, of having something that you can march to that's got a bit of a beat behind it so that you're not mm. just marching along like... A way of kind of keeping their spirits up a little bit as well. Mm. And I mean, a lot of the songs have got, you know, like dirty verses and lots of stuff about like loose women and all that kind of fun stuff. But, you mm. know, yeah. Actually, that was a detail from this film I quite enjoyed was the life away from the trench. Because the impression yes. I got yeah. growing up was they went to the trench and they were there the whole time. Yeah, and it's exactly. like, no, it was almost like FIFA work. It was shift work. It was you were there for a bunch of days. Three or four days. Three or four days. And, and then, then you'd have a couple of weeks a, off. Yeah. Yeah, a couple, yeah. You got to come back. And part of that, and then going into the culture of the fact they played sport, they had like sport days against each other, and that there were loads of brothels. And obviously, because so many mm. of these young men were like 15 to 18 and had lied about being old enough to get in. Oh, yeah. And then them having their first sexual experiences with, uh, french brothel workers yeah that one guy who was like she spanked me on the on the bum yeah. like i was a naughty little boy sort of thing it's yeah. like wow okay but that's something that we, i mean is probably not taught in schools for a particular reason but it's also something that we're not just generally taught mm. in society about that part of the experience and i thought that that 
additional sort of cultural knowledge, like how they how they ha- they did have beer and how they also you know the cigarette culture um, and like, like good cigarettes. Trading things. It's interesting. I was thinking about the cigarette culture, mm. where you know in the last sort of sixty odd seventy odd years that there's been this issue with smoking, mm. um, and you know possibly is one of the the causes the fact that all of these soldiers that's what they did they smoked and then mm. they came home and they were still smoking and it became fashionable yeah and so now it's a you know an issue a health issue yeah i mean look smoking was was happening regardless but i do i do think the fact that it was one of the simple joys that they were able to access um in in that part of you know in in that awful war and everything they were going through do in between i think it certainly contributes yeah oh yeah so let's score the film uh, so we give films a score out of 10 um, and we, we're not scoring the war I should just point this out like, <laughs> because I do feel as though at times in this conversation we have gotten very into like the war and our own opinions of it but this score is purely related to to the film itself how we read the film and whether or not we enjoy is not the right word whether or not we engaged with it or mm. not mm. and as you haven't seen it Sarah you get to go first what score would you give they shall not grow old out of 10. Well, I want to sort of really highlight that in the past, my fault as well, we've always had a little funny thing from the film mm. as our um, way of engaging with that score. Mm. So to keep in the spirit of that without being disrespectful, mm. uh, I'm going to say that I will give this um, nine frames out of 10. Nice. <laughs> just, that, just that one missing one, computer-generated yeah. one. Mm. Uh, what about yourself, Alan? What would you give this film? Oh... I don't know. And now I'm having to think really hard as well about... Be respectful. Yeah, be respectful, but Ellen. But funny. But no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. I, I, I think that this has been really masterfully put together. And obviously this is an area of history that I've always been really interested in. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to give it 10 out of 10. And I'm not going to give it a silly thing to go with it. Mm. I'm just straight up giving it a 10 out of 10. It's, it's a brilliant documentary. It's yeah. been really well put together. And it's just so interesting mm-hmm. and beautiful. And the way that <laughs> beautiful is not really the right word. It's the actual document. The content is not beautiful, but the way it's been put together, the way that they've restored the footage and colorized it and put the extra frames in and made it so real and vibrant and alive. It's, 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 it's very much like I said at the very beginning to it takes away that glass case, I guess, like you were saying, Sarah. So it, instead of feeling like you're very far removed from them, even though historically we're very far removed from them, to see them all not that come far to removed. Them. Well, I mean, mm. it's well, I mean, it's over a hundred years. It's not that which much is, distance. Which is not which is not that much, but still it, within living memory. You did have a chat with someone that fought. I mean, yeah. in this. I mean, yeah, I did. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that the way that it's all been put together is just mm. beautiful. And Okay, I mean, to be fair, Peter was 105 when I met him. Mm. So. It's still technically. He still met him, living memory. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, think that, I think the amazing thing about him was that he went from horse and cart to like space travel and he just missed smartphones. Mm. Like. Lucky. He yeah, just fair. missed. <laughs> thank goodness. I mean, you know, he, bought, he probably wouldn't have been very keen on them anyway, but that's yeah. beside the point. But yeah, he was amazing. For me looking at it as a film i when it comes to these things i always go if it's if it's done its job and it's done it really well which i think this film absolutely has i think it's one of the best documentaries i've seen the premise 
not just the discussion of the First World War, but the technology that in, that yeah. infuses this particular film. I think it, it's a resounding success. Um, it's certainly one of the most affecting films um, mm. that I've experienced. Mm. I then get to the point of going, do I think it could have been done any better? And I think... I think maybe possibly there are very very tiny things that could have been could have been potentially done here and there maybe with more time um mm. there was a little bit of a time limit on getting this film produced um, mm. which is why they made that decision to only focus on the british soldiers for example so that they you know weren't worrying about the perspectives from the french and the russians and whoever else um i think this is um such such an impressive artifact about this time period and such a well produced film um i would say that it's i'd say that it's essential viewing um and if it's essential viewing um and it's incredibly well constructed i'm gonna have to give it nine and a half broken boob holes out of ten um because it's it's such a such an incredible film it really really is remarkable um and the fact that we have any of this footage at all. Yeah. And then to see what they did with it. <sighs> and yeah, I, again, it, bringing it back to that conversation of history, I find it incredibly important that we do keep these records alive. Yeah. You know, I, I just think about, you know, the book burnings or, you know, lo- lo- the loss of the Library of Alexandria, moments mm. in history where we've lost so much. Yeah. Mm. Or that, oh, that huge fire that happened, where was it, a couple of years ago in that museum in, in Peru? Yeah. Brazil? Some, yeah, I think it was Brazil. Brazil. It was in Brazil. And yeah. the, the whole thing just went up and I was just like, oh my God, And when you what lose those loss. moments in history. Oh you know, God. So bringing awful. it back and making it something that's accessible by people is incredibly yeah. important. Mm. So you've been told, go watch this film. It's um, so good. I mean, that's part of the reason why we decided to do it um, even though the film is only just about a year old, mm. is watching it in the cinema when it came out. And again, it was, you know, it was a limited release run. It was at the Lunar Cinema, which is kind of, for, you know, more specialised niche, specialized niche uh, theatrical events. Um, it was, it was very, very um, affecting. And just if you have any interest in either documentaries, film technology, or the First World War, so we should have hit you on one of those topics, go and watch this film. It's it's remarkable. I think that's the best word for it. It's a yeah. remarkable, remarkable film. Yeah. Um, Dr. Sarah and almost Dr. Ellen, thank you very much for joining <laughs> me on this episode. Thanks for having us, almost Dr. Stephen. Ooh, you're, a bit, bit you're further welcome. away. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Oh, not that far. Okay. Not that far. Uh, uh, for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Uh, we have a number of ways that you can get in touch with us. We're available on Facebook. You can search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there, leave reviews, comments, whatever you like. Uh, you can also become a member of our Patreon and get some special bonus goodies here and there. Just go to uh, patreon.com forward slash podcast, And of course, make sure that you are subscribed to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify or wherever to get a new episode each and every week. But that's all for this episode. So until next time, goodbye. 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 Oh, that was awful. (laughs) Let's never do that again. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.